This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life, but he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who, believe, he who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful for all that you have revealed to us. And as we study and study and read your scripture, each time we discover new things. Its depths seem to be without end. And Father, there's so much for us to learn and so much for us to uh, assimilate into our thinking that at times it just seems beyond us that we'll never have enough time. And to some degree that is true, for we have all of eternity before us. So Father, today as we study a most significant doctrine in the Scriptures, the ascension and the session of Christ, its impact on the church age, pray that you might help us to assimilate this, put it together with other things that we have learned and that we might understand the ways in which this is designed to transform our thinking, that it will transform our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we are going to continue this study and spend a little more time looking into the Old Testament. And this is what we're looking at in our study of Ephesians 4, 7 through 10, all in relation, um, all in relation to background uh, for us. And so this uh, uh, is our continuing study right now is background to Ephesians 4, 7 through 10. This is our fifth lesson focusing on the ascension and session of Christ. And I want to say something about my approach on things like this. As I understand it, when the Apostle Paul is writing, these, um, these epistles are all written to congregations that he has taught. He knows what they know. He knows uh, their background and other things that they have learned. And so he is moving very, very quickly, just touching on words and phrases that just have a whole load of baggage, theological baggage, doctrinal baggage that's associated with it. And he knows that they, they can bring all of that to bear on their understanding of his epistles. And he touches on a number of these things that are very clear to them. Remember, he taught, personally taught these Ephesian believers uh, for two years, he says, day and night. So he had numerous classes, personal conversations, all of these things. But that's not so much true for 21st century Christians. So many Christians today never have read their Bible. 
They never pick it up. If they do, they read some familiar psalm like Psalm 23, or they may go to some familiar chapter in the New Testament, but that's as far as they go. And a tragic thing is some people think, oh, I'm not going to read my Bible. It's not always translated precisely, and if I read it, I'll just have too many questions and I might get confused. Welcome to the world of anyone who's gone to seminary. Because once you open your Greek New Testament or your Hebrew Old Testament, guess what? In some ways, things are cleared up, but in other ways, they are not. There's no magic language. And so it is important for us to internalize the Word of God that the translations that we have in English are generally pretty good. They may not be real precise, but part of a theory or an understanding of the translation is to give an adequate translation of the verse and leave it to the pastor in the pulpit to create more precision and to interpret it for the congregation. But we we ought not be illiterate Christians when it comes to the Bible. We should know who all the people are, all the events are. We should understand all of these things. And that is that enables us to get so much more out of what is uh, taught uh, from the pulpit. So as 21st century Christians, we need to pursue a knowledge and understanding of the Scripture more aggressively than we do, and that applies to every one of us, no matter how aggressively you are pursuing it. You need to pursue it uh, more aggressively. And I think that it is important when we come to various passages in Scripture, like the one before us, that brings into, you know, brings into the context so many different uh, concepts and doctrines and ideas from the Old Testament that it is important for us to understand that so that we can have a robust understanding of the ascension and session because Paul doesn't sit down or other writers of scripture don't sit down and tell us everything there is to know about the ascension and session of Christ in in any one particular passage. You have something here and something there and something somewhere else. So it's important to pull that together. But in something like this, it's also important to go back and look at these Old Testament passages that are the foundation and background for everything that is said here. We live in an era where, unfortunately, a lot of Christians are ignorant of the Old Testament. Oh, that was for the Jewish people. Uh, A person that I won't mention where or how that was overheard not long ago saying, oh, he teaches on judges. Well, that's for the Jewish people, but I guess that's okay. Unfortunately, there is a pastor in Atlanta who is the son of a very well-known, solid pastor, and the son went through Dallas Seminary and is an embarrassment to anybody else who went to Dallas Seminary, and he is known for saying that Christians need not study, mention, or ever talk about the Old Testament. Well, if you don't study the Old Testament, you will be ignorant of a lot of what is going on in the New Testament, for God spent a lot of time for over a thousand years revealing that which is in the Old Testament as the necessary background to be able to understand what was going on when the New Testament would come into into being and what what it was talking about. So that when John the Baptist shows up, 
we understand that that he's prophesied at the last chapter of Malachi that someone will come in the in the spirit of Elijah and that there will be the proclamation and the importance of him as the forerunner of the Messiah. And so when John shows up and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand, people who read these things together go, aha, I, I understand that connection now, that there's an order and a purpose to this. And when he talks about the kingdom, they know what that kingdom is, that this is the messianic kingdom that will be ruled from Jerusalem by the Messiah who was predicted in the Old Testament and that that Messiah would be the son of God. He would be also be the son of man and he would be the ruler of this kingdom that has not yet come in to existence and it is not a secular kingdom. It is not brought about by our efforts. It is brought about by God the Holy Spirit and in, or, in um, uh, order of the uh, plan of God, in the order of the plan of God, and so all of these things are are important. We have to realize that spiritual growth and Christian maturity cannot be developed uh, by soundbite theology or 20-minute sermonettes for Christianettes because it takes time to develop significant thoughts. And it takes time when we come together on a Sunday morning to bring everybody back to where we were at the end last time. And if you weren't here last time, then, you know, I try to give a good enough review so people can catch up who may have missed last week or the week before. And so this is all important. Besides, you need, we all need to hear these things num- numerous times. So we are answering three basic questions at this stage of our study. First of all, what did the rejection of Christ due to the kingdom program of God. God had announced that he is going to send this son of David, this descendant of David, who would be qualified to rule Israel and that he would establish his kingdom. There was no hint that something would intervene for 2,000 years. And so this rejection of Christ by the uh, by the leaders of Israel and by the people of Israel, uh, it appears that, what? Well, oops, what happened to the kingdom plan? Jesus came to offer the kingdom. And see, this confused even the disciples because one of the last questions they asked him in Acts 1 was, is this when you are bringing in the kingdom? And instead he said, no, I want you to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Spirit. Wow. So that coming of the Spirit is integral to what's happening now, and we know that from some, uh, from some other things. So that's, that's the first question. What did the rejection of Christ do to the kingdom program? The second question is why was the ascension of Christ necessary for the giving of the Holy Spirit? And that is related to what Jesus said. And the third question is what is the significance of the ascension of Christ and his session? for this new dispensation. Why is this so important? Well, first of all, to answer that first question, God had a plan which he had kept to himself, and it was not revealed until after the rejection of the Messiah. It was only hinted at prior to the crucifixion, and it was not revealed by God until after the birth of the church, described in Acts chapter 2. Remember, we studied this passage. We spent a lot of time on Ephesians chapter 3. 
And in Ephesians 3, 9, Paul says that part of his role as an apostle was to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Now, the mystery isn't like a whodunit. A mystery is previously unrevealed information. That's how it was used in the in the Bible. It's things that God had not revealed. They weren't revealed in the Old Testament. So Paul said he is to make all see or understand what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. So this dispensation, what we're going through now, was hidden. No one knew of, nobody, nobody even had a hint Jesus gave a couple of hints, and then right before he went to the cross, in the upper room discourse in John 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, he really goes into a lot of what will happen in New Testament truth, including the coming of the Spirit, just before he goes to the cross. And 3.10 continues the thought, to the intent that now, now, as opposed to then, so we know that there's something different happened in this church age. In the past ages, it had been hidden, but now the manifold or multifaceted wisdom of God might be made known by who? By the church. That's our role as church-age believers. Church refers to the body of Christ, all of those who have trusted in Christ. And see, this has not been uh, really understood by many in the church age. They've been caught up with many other things that we are to demonstrate, we are to make known, we are to be a witness uh, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Now that refers to the angels. Last time, what did we talk about? The ascension in relation to the angelic revolt, that this now is related to this. This church age is specifically related to what's happening uh, in uh, relation to the angelic revolt in the heavenly places. Now, in relation to the second question, why was the ascension of Christ necessary for the giving of the Spirit? Christ himself said that he must ascend before he could send the Holy Spirit. This was because he was not yet king on the earth and and God had a new plan for a new people in the church age. So Jesus recognizes he needs to leave because something new is going to happen. And if he stayed on the earth, it was not going to enable the next stage that God had in mind. This is indicated in John 16, 7, where Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that's his term for the Holy Spirit, all through here, the parakletos, The helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. Okay, so that departure is necessary to go to stage two. That's why in Acts 1, he ascends. Right before he ascends, he says, you guys stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Spirit. And that's what comes in Acts 2 with the beginning of the church age. And then the third question was, in the ascension, Christ is now serving as our high priest As such, he serves as our intercessor and our advocate before the Father. This is something totally new. There never was anything like this in the Old Testament. But now we have Christ as the God-man. The God-man. I want to emphasize man. There is a man that is now sitting at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And he is our high priest. And he is the one who intercedes for us. 
and he is our advocate before the Father. In Hebrews 4, 14, and 15, which we touched on last week, we read, seeing then that we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Remember, we talked about the three levels of the heavens according to the scriptural view. There is the uh, atmospheric heavens, the first heaven, which just incorporates the the, uh, the gases surrounding the earth. And then there's the second heaven, which is everything beyond the atmosphere out to the edge of the universe. And then there's the throne of God. That's the third heaven. So it's talking about this individual, this God-man, as they watched him ascend, it wasn't instantaneous. We don't know how slow or how fast it was, but it was it was rather gradual. And he is taken up and received into a cloud, which represents his acceptance by God. And then he goes through the heavens all the way to the right hand of God the Father. For And verse 15 for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he is sinless. He's at the right hand of the Father. He is in God, the hypostatic union. He is a man sitting there. And what is he doing? Romans eight twenty six twenty seven and 34. I find this fascinating that in Romans 8, you have an emphasis by Paul on both the intercessory ministry of the Holy Spirit and the intercessory role of Jesus Christ for us. And so when the, when the Christ ascends, then 10 days later, he sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells every single believer, and part of his role in this dispensation is he enables us to pray, uh, Paul says we do not know how to pray as we ought, so we're going to make mistakes. But God, the Holy Spirit, sort of smooths out the rough edges, uh, gets things cleaned up, and then he is the one who intercedes on our behalf. Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, some people have taken that to be speaking in tongues, but notice it's a groaning that can't be uttered, okay? You know, speaking in tongues, you're uttering something. I always used to, used to try to joke with uh, Pentecostals I knew, and I said, so you have a better prayer life when you pray in tongues. How do you know that? Oh, I just feel it. Well, wait a minute. Do you know what you pray for? You don't understand what you pray for. You don't understand the language. How do you know that it's being answered? Oh, Romans 8.27, now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. It's the Holy Spirit is the he. He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And then uh, seven verses later he says, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. So in his role as high priest, he is making intercession for us. And also, according to 1 John 2, 1, which says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, and you will, okay? There's not one person here. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands to see who hasn't sinned all week. There's not one person who doesn't sin. 
And uh, Christianity isn't uh, for those who are perfect and don't sin. It is for those who are forgiven because they've trusted Christ as Savior. Uh, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. And it doesn't matter what sin that is. All sin violates the fellowship we have, that fellowship bond we have with the Father and breaks it just as when a child disobeys his parents, it breaches that relationship and there has to be a recovery or restoration of that. And so that is the role of the verse, uh, two verses before this. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And the fourth point I want to make on this is that Christ is doing something else right now. Christ is preparing a place for us. In John 14, 2, a verse that many of us have memorized. I've known this verse since I was a young child. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, but if this were not so, then I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, I know that there are some Christians like, like me that when we memorize this, we memorize it in the King James Version and it says, in my Father's house are many mansions. That is a terrible, terrible mistranslation. And I'm just going to briefly say this to point this out. Uh, the Greek word, which is moneo, related to or um, related to abiding, um, it is an abode simply or a dwelling place, a place where people live, possibly temporary. Okay, now get that point. It's possibly temporary. Uh, this meaning in the uh, Latin in the Vulgate uses the word mansio. That's where we get our word mansion. That's why the King James translators translated it mansion. And even at that time in English, mansion did not carry the connotation of some huge, extravagant, beautiful, gorgeous place. And I know this is terribly disappointing to many of you who mansion some palace in the sky. But the reality is that we're not there long. Why not? Because we will return to earth with Christ. The word has a sense of a temporary abode. He's preparing a temporary place for us because we're going to return with him at the second coming. After the rapture, there's a seven years of the tribulation, then we return with Christ when he sets up his kingdom, and we're going to rule and reign with Christ where? In heaven? No, here on the earth. And what happens at the end of the millennial kingdom? Well, there's going to be a new heavens and new earth, Revelation 21, and where are we going to be living? There. And where's God going to be in the new heavens and new earth? On the earth. He will make his abode with us on the earth. So if you read Revelation 21 and 22 carefully, you discover that we don't spend eternity in heaven because God brings heaven to earth. And we will spend eternity on the earth. So he goes to prepare a temporary abode for us. Some people say it's like an inn. I don't think it's like the Motel 6 ad where they keep the light on for us. But God will keep the light on for us because he is the light. So now last week we focused on two things. And because of communion, we're already well well into where we are today. But we focused on two things, the ascension that completed the strategic victory of Christ on the cross. And then he sits down. That's the session. We're really sort of transitioning from the ascension to the session uh, this week and next week. 
And second, we looked at it as the strategic victory of Christ sets up a new phase or dispensation in the plan of God. So today we're going to start focusing on this as a victorious ascent, looking at the Old Testament passage that's quoted here in Ephesians 4, uh, that is quoted in Ephesians 4, 8, that relates to this ascension. In Acts 1-9, we looked at this last time, talking about how after Christ had spoken to them, he's taken up with, and a cloud receives him into the, out of their sight, and they keep watching. And an angel standing next to them says, what are you looking at? Uh, don't you know that this Jesus who left like this is going to come back just like this? So that means Jesus hasn't come back yet. He's not come back in the church. He didn't come back as the Holy Spirit. He's not coming back. Uh, uh, in any other way to establish some king, he will ascend, he will descend to the Mount of Olives to the same place, and he will be observed in his coming, and that is when he will uh, finally judge those in the tribulation and establish his kingdom. And Ephesians, I mean Hebrews 4.14, we looked at these various, uh, various passages, I've already reviewed this slide on the three heavens, and in 1 Peter 3.22 says that he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. So what this tells us is that, that he has been put in authority over, over the angels, all of the angels. But he is still seated at the right hand of the Father. So we go to this passage. Ephesians 4, 9 says, Now this expression, quoting from uh, uh, Psalm 68, 18, he ascended. Notice what he does. He does the same thing that I do. He takes a phrase and he explains what it means. This expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended? I mean, if he's in heaven to start with and now he's ascending to heaven, that means he what? He had to have descended first. So he descended into the lower parts of the earth. We'll get into details on this, but this isn't talking, it is talking about the lower parts which are the earth. That's how that genitive should be understood. This isn't the passage talking about the victorious proclamation and going uh, uh, into Sheol and making pronouncement to the angels. That's not what this is talking about. Uh, He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So this reminds us that in this session, it is directly related to his authority over the angels, uh, according to what we looked at already, Ephesians 3.10, that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to principalities, powers in in the heavenly places. That's a term that always refers to the angelic host, both, both the fallen angels and the elect angels. Now, this takes us to another passage, and um, as I've been studying through this, some of you have heard me teach this three or four times. Some of you don't remember that you have heard me teach this three or four times and need to be reminded of this, but I'm, I always go back and restudy everything when I go back and teach something I've taught before, and I add new things and I find new things, okay? Now, this is something that is new, Psalm 8.4. What, we're, what I'm seeing here is that, that this is emphasizing that a man, the God-man, is who is sitting at the right hand of the Father and that the angels have been made subject to him. 
Now, Psalm 8-4 is an interesting psalm because the vast majority of scholars, good scholars, bad scholars, dispensationalists, some of our favorite pastors and teachers have been wrong on this. There is such a tendency among uh, scholars to not take messianic psalms as messianic psalms. And we've talked about this before, that many of the psalms are intentionally designed to say something about the future Messiah. But there are those who've come along, and many were influenced, if you trace it out historically, after the Reform- at the time of the Reformation, many Reformation scholars had to go to rabbis to learn Hebrew. And with that, they picked up some of the bad hermeneutics, the bad interpretation of these rabbis. And by this time in the history of Judaism, they had figured out ways to take passages that can be demonstrated to have been taken messianically in the uh, first, second, third, fourth centuries and before, before Christ. They were understood as messianic that what happened is Jews tried to, in order to counter Christianity, tried to get rid of the messianic interpretations of many of these uh, passages. And so there were Protestants who picked up those ideas, and so there's always this strand of scholarship that denies the messianic prophecy. In fact, I was told that uh, um, uh, by one student, I think it was uh, Andy Woods, that when he was at Dallas, he asked all of his Old Testament professors this, and they could only agree that one passage was Messianic, and that was Psalm 110.1. Okay? Now, this is very clearly a Messianic passage. And it is usually just interpreted that this passage is talking about um, how, how, how magnificent the human race is, that God designed us for a high purpose. Uh, but it's more than that. It does do that, but that, that isn't all that it does. Let me read it to you. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, what is it in these three verses that tells you that this is most likely messianic? The second stanza of verse 4, and the son of man, that's a messianic title. Now, the fact that it's not capitalized here tells you that that's an interpretive decision because in Hebrew and Greek, you don't have uppercase and lowercase Letters They don't do capitalization to indicate God or something else special. And so the fact that they did not put this shows is the interpretive bias of the, of, of the translator. And so what we see here is really there is a messianic intent, and that is picked up and used by the writer of Hebrews who quotes this in Hebrews 2, 6 through 9 saying, but one testified in a certain place. That's his way of quoting from a psalm. He's quoting from Psalm 8, 4 through 6, which we just read. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? Now, I capitalized it here 
because in the context of Hebrews, it's very clear he's talking about Christ. And they under, it should be understood that way. But in the New King James, it's not capitalized, so they're still refusing to accept this as messianic. Are the son of man that you may take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. Now it's very clear that the writer of Hebrews sees this as talking about Jesus, the Son of Man, and that he is the object of these third-person pronouns. Now I want to address something else when we look at this is we live in an age where everybody wants to be gen, gen, not be gender-specific or not use gender-specific language or use inclusive language or all of the other craziness. Language works a certain way, especially inflected languages. English is not necessarily an inflected language, but Hebrew and Greek both are. And so they could use a third-person feminine singular or a third-person feminine plural. And even the Old Testament recognizes that it is legitimate to use a plural pronoun to refer to a singular individual. That's that's the inspired word of God. You find that all through both Hebrew and, and English. So they could have done that. But he's not talking about they, the human race. He is talking about he, the Son of Man, in this passage. And so it is necessary for these terms to be masculine, singular, because that's who he's talking about. When it says, what is man, often this is said, oh, this just refers to the whole human race. And it probably does at that point. What is the human race that you are mindful of him? Well, what happened to the human race? The the one who is the head of the human race wasn't Eve, it was Adam. And so we are, the human race is always talked, talked about as mankind because it goes back to Adam. We are all descendants of Adam, the first man, and he was the one responsible for us. And this is what causes us to think of the, of the human race in a united way because we all descended from Adam. That's why it was called humankind that it's only humankind if you want to believe in Darwinian evolution. But it's mankind because we all descended from that first male, the head of the human race. And he failed. So the second Adam, Christ is referred many times in the New Testament as the second Adam, Romans 5 and uh, 1 Corinthians 5. We have Christ is the second Adam, and he's the one who succeeds where the first Adam failed. Adam failed, disobeyed God. Jesus was without sin. And so what Psalm 8.4 is saying is that what, why, why are you mindful? Why do you think about it? The word there is the same word that's usually translated remember, the word zakar, that when Jesus is talking about remember uh, me in, in, um, in the Lord's table, he, of course, uses a Hebrew word, I mean the Greek word, but it, he's using it in reference to the Hebrew concept. And that's what's here. You are mindful. You remember. Why do you think about men? Why do you? Why are you concerned about men, God? Why do you think uh, the human race? And then it shifts from the from the human race as a whole. 
mankind to, and the son of man, that you visit him. Now we're bringing in something that is specific to someone identified as the son of man. And verse 5, for you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. This is talking about the coming Messiah. And we've seen that in Daniel 7, that's his title, the Son of Man. And Psalm 8, 6, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. Well, that's exactly what we just got through reading last week in reference to the angelic conflict, that when Christ ascended, God subjugated all things, all of the angels and principalities and powers under the authority of Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 1.3, connecting the dots here in Hebrews, he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, is the radiance or the effulgence or the uh, shining out of his, that is God the Father's glory. He's the exact representation. He's like a stamp. You take a, a stamp um, or, or on ink and then you press it down and push it down on the paper and it gives you the exact representation, reflection of the, of the stamp. It's a character, actually the Greek word is character, the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purifications of sins, what happened? He sits down at the right hand of the majesty of high. And that takes us back to Psalm 110.1. Psalm 10:12 says, "But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of the Father, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool." Again, talking about Psalm 110. So we're running short. We're still not getting to Psalm 68. I'll start there next time. So what we're going to do in all in the rest of this. We're just scratching the surface. There are five Messianic Psalms. We're talking about Psalm 8, Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 89, Psalm 132, and Psalm 110. I've taught through most of those, plus Daniel 7 and the role of Psalm 68, 18. All of these things have to come together just to really appreciate three verses in Ephesians 4. Then... We have to understand the terms that are used in these passages, the term Son of Man, the term Son of God, the term Son of David, and the titles King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Third, we have to look at the Davidic covenant as the foundation for understanding all of these things. And then last, we have to understand the Melchizedekian priesthood and its fulfillment in Christ. So that brings us to Psalm 68, uh, 16, and the context of Psalm 68, 18, which is where we'll start next time. Father, we thank you for just the magnificence of your word. And as we see all of these different threads that are woven through verse after verse after verse and book after book in the Old Testament and how you uh, bring these things together, tie them together in various passages in the, in the New Testament, all of which gives great testimony to Uh, Christ being who he claimed to be, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Son of Man, that he applied to himself all of these titles, claimed to be 
uh, deity, claim to be one with you, the Father, and claim to be uh, the only one through whom we could come to you, the Father. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Now, Father, we are so thankful that we have this revelation that we can probe it and study it and learn it, and it expands our horizons in terms of all that was accomplished on the cross and what was accomplished in the ascension and session. And, Father, we pray, too, for any that are here, any that are listening online or to the recordings that have never trusted Christ as Savior, that it is just a simple thing. It is just believing that Jesus is who he said he was, that he was the Son of God, that there is only one God, and he is the Son of God, part of the Trinity, and he is the one who came to earth, took on humanity, and died as our substitute, paid for our sin on the cross, that we might have everlasting life. It is the free offer of salvation to everyone, to any who will believe. It's not based on what we do. It's based on what Christ did on the cross. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we studied this morning, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.